Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. So this is sort of the last segment of time that we allocate or dedicate on Sunday mornings, and we dedicate this time to the to the study and the preaching of the, the Word of God. <clears throat> we take the Bible very seriously. I hope you take the Bible seriously. Uh, we need, uh, as Keith prayed, we need desperately to know the truth, um, the truth about life, the truth about ourselves, the truth about, um, ultimately, the truth about God. And so we're thankful for his word this morning. And we've started a few weeks back going through a uh, three-year cycle through the scriptures, uh, starting uh, uh, through this fall in the book of Genesis, and that's where we're at this morning. And Genesis, we're actually going to be in Genesis chapter 11. We're not <clears throat> covering every, every passage because to get through the Bible in three years uh, in terms of study and, and preaching, um, that's kind of a tall order, but... Uh, hopefully as we go through we're covering uh, some of those really important uh, segments of scripture Um, and hopefully we're not uh, avoiding the difficult spots either because as I mentioned last week when we talked about the flood we don't want to be doing that we don't want to be selective Um, we really want to have hearts uh, that are listening to God and uh, I hope that uh, regardless of your opinions this morning about God or whether there is a God or who God is or what he's like or anything else, that you will at least have an open mind this morning and you will at least have a, a willingness to, uh, to listen to what scripture says and, and to uh, consider the testimony of the word of God. Um, last week we were talking uh, about the flood and how the flood brought judgment upon the world. Um, but moving forward in the narrative, uh, we find rather quickly that although the flood uh, re, uh, renewed or refreshed in some ways the face of the earth, uh, it did not remove sin. The world that Noah and his family stepped out of the ark into is a very different world physically. Uh, the topography of the planet was uh, dramatically changed. Weather conditions would, were changed. Um, very different world in those ways, but it was also uh, a great deal different than the world that God had initially created. So uh, I, we're going to be in uh, Genesis 11 today, but I just wanted to just kind of, we didn't, you know, we talked about the flood, but we didn't talk about what happened after the flood and, and some passages there, and I, I didn't give those to, uh, to the, the guys at the back to put up. So for the next little bit, you're going to be uh, just kind of maybe listening, and uh, if you have a copy of scriptures with you, a Bible, you can, you can uh, check, uh, look back to chapter 9. But I just wanted to mention a little bit the... Um, the no, what's called the Noahic Covenant, or the covenant that God uh, made with Noah and his descendants. Um, there are echoes of the original creation. For example, in chapter 9 and verse 1, um, you know, as God tells Noah and his uh, sons and, 
and their wives to uh, go forward from the ark. There is, he revisits that uh, mandate to uh, fill uh, the earth, to uh, reproduce and to fill the earth. And so that's kind of a, an echo of the, God's original uh, commands uh, to Adam and Eve. Um, there's also reference there in chapter 9 and verse 6 to the image of God. It says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And so that reflects back as well to Genesis 1 and 2, where, where God originally created Adam and Eve, our first parents, in, in, uh, in his image. Um, however, we quickly see, for example, in chapter 9, verse 2, it says, The fear of you and the dread of you will be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the ground and the fish of the sea. So there's, there's an element of fear that did not exist in the original creation, but we did see in Genesis 3 when we looked at the fall into sin that, that fear uh, and shame were uh, immediate consequences of the fall. And so those things still exist. So sin still exists. Fear and shame still exist. Um, in, in chapter 9, verses 18 through 27 is the account of Noah uh, f uh, getting drunk and falling asleep in his tent and and, and all the, the fallout from that. And there's, there, uh, there's a lot in there about shame as well. So we see the realities of fear and shame uh, very present in, um, in this uh, washed world uh, following the flood. And so... Um, and even in, in our main, in main text today, which would be the first nine verses of chapter 11, we see that it didn't take very long for, um, um, for the human race to uh, once again rise up in rebellion against uh, God. But as I say, I want to just look at just a little bit at the Noahic co Covenant. We're not going to spend much time on it, uh, but I, I, covenants, the covenants of Scripture are important. Um, it's, this is the first explicit covenant in Scripture. So this is the first time we see in Scripture where God says, I will make my, I make my covenant with you. And he says it three, at least three times to Noah, uh, and he uses the, those words, my covenant. And um, <clears throat> so um, um, that's probably one of the, the more important things about biblical covenants is that they are unilateral in nature. That is to say that God initiates his covenants and he always sets the terms of his covenants. So it's not like, uh, you know, us and God getting together and working out a deal, okay? Uh, that's my, you might call that a contract, but when the Bible talks about covenants, it's talking about the covenants that God makes with man through in, at different points in human history and uh, biblical history. Um, so... Uh, the uh, covenants uh, throughout Scripture have different uh, elements or aspects to them. There's, there's always a promise involved because God is making a covenant. He makes, pro he, he makes promises. And uh, those promises are based on his power and faithfulness that he is uh, willing to make a promise and that he is able to fulfill that promise. And in the Noahic covenant, the promise is that he will what? Never flood the earth like that ever again and uh, you can and you can read on and see that there there are also conditions there's you know there's usually uh, some conditions involved in the covenant with the noahic covenant there are no conditions so it's what we call an unconditional covenant um, 
there are also, whenever God makes a covenant in Scripture, there's a sign or a symbol. Uh, you may be familiar with this, the, the, uh, the Mosaic Covenant, uh, what we call the Mosaic Covenant. We call this the, Abra- uh, the um, Noahic Covenant, and we call it to refer to the Abrahamic Covenant, which we'll be looking at in two weeks' time, but, uh, or the Mosaic Covenant. But really, the, it, was, it's not, it wasn't Noah's Covenant or Moses' Covenant or Abraham's Covenant. It's God's Covenants, right? But we use those terms, uh, Abrahamic, uh, Mo- Noahic, Mosaic, Davidic, covenant uh, that God made uh, with David and his descendants and so on. We call them that, that so we can differentiate between those different uh, covenants. And there's overlap between the covenants. Oftentimes the covenant uh, is a reiteration of a prior covenant, and sometimes uh, with some kind of things added uh, in. Um, but um, uh, but this, the, all the covenants had a seal. So the Mosaic covenant, for example, the seal was, do you remember? The seal of the Mosaic Covenant, the sign, symbol, seal, was circumcision. Um, the symbol of the Noahic Covenant was what? The rainbow. And, uh, and then the covenants of God have a scope and a duration. The Noahic Covenant was, uh, the scope of the covenant was for every creature, without exception. Uh, not even just human, not even just humanity, but even, even other creatures. So it was like a covenant that God made with all of creation that he would never send another flood like, like that upon the earth. And the duration, uh, he calls it an everlasting covenant. So, so those are some of the uh, elements or aspects of, the, of a covenant and of the Noahic covenant. And as I say, the sign was, uh, we call it the, the rainbow, but God calls it here uh, uh, his bow. And I don't want to, again, I don't want to bog down. It is interesting, uh, if you haven't, uh, if you're not aware of this, that word that's the Hebrew word that's, um, that is uh, here as bow is uh, used 77 times throughout the Old Testament, Old Testament being written in Hebrew. Um, and every, every time it refers to a, uh, a weapon. We used to play, how many of you used to play bow and arrows when you were kids, right? Some of you still do, which is good. Be careful with that. But, um, but every time the word bow occurs, that's what it's talking about. You know, we talk, talk about tying our shoes in a bow, but no, it, do, it doesn't do that. 77 occurrences in Scripture, and this one here in Ezekiel chapter 1 is refers to a rainbow, if you will. But that word is a reference to a bow as a, a weapon of a warrior. And some people have, uh, have uh, kind of extrapolated from that and said, and said that, uh, you know, I set my bow in the sky. And, and uh, uh, Dale Ralph Davis is a biblical commentator. He, he preached, a, preached a message one time on this very text, and he called it the day God hung up his bow. And, the, and the, what they're doing there is they're kind of pointing to the fact that God said, okay, I'm not going to ever do this again. Okay, I'm, not, I'm never going to flood the earth like this again. And so he, he hung his bow in the sky. Anyways, uh, that's kind of uh, some of the symbolism there, which uh, is interesting. So the remainder of um, chapter 9 uh, focuses on Noah's immediate sons. Uh, and that leads into chapter 10, which is often referred to as the table of nations. Uh, there's no other document like this, by the way, in, uh, in antiquity anywhere that sets out the, the, uh, the boundaries of the different people groups and where they all ended up settling and, 
and their and the descendants of the of uh, of the sons of Noah, and uh, it's it's quite uh, quite interesting. Historians are very fascinated by this part of scripture, uh, Genesis chapter ten. Um, uh, it's inter- there's interesting stuff in there for sure, and some significant things. I was I'll point out a few things from from that section if I could from from the last half of chapter nine and chapter ten. Before we get into chapter eleven, I just want to point out uh, f- uh, four. Four things. First of all, when um, the descendants of Noah are dealt with, uh, the descendants of uh, um, of Japheth and Ham, uh, which includes the Canaanites um, or Canaan, the father of the Canaanites, are dealt with first, and then the descendants of Shem. Shem is we believe to be uh, Noah's firstborn. Uh, three sons are mentioned, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. But when uh, scripture here deals with the descendants and it, it deals with um, Japheth, who I think may be the youngest, but he was definitely younger than Shem, um, first, and then and Ham, his descendants, and then Shem. Um, and there's a, a pattern in this and there's a reason for it. And, and it kind of works like like this. It's like the... Um, uh, information about Japheth and Ham is dealt with so that it can then be cleared aside so that the main focus can be uh, on Shem and his descendants because Shem uh, is the father of Abraham. Abraham is of the lineage of Shem. And uh, and uh, even um, after um, the passage that follows the one we're looking at today, uh, which is chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, in the passage that follows that, uh, the writer outlines the descendants of Shem, and he does the same thing. He deals with all of the, uh, we, call the we say the non-Abrahamic descendants, so that kind of clearing the way to talk about what the focus is going to be going forward. And we're talking forward for the whole entire Old Testament because Abraham forward, the concern is not with, uh, you know, every tribe, tongue, and nation. It's with a person who would become a nation. And that is the lineage. And lineage is very important in, in Scripture. Now, God um, still has the whole world in view. It's interesting that in this table of nations, there's 70 names, and seven is the number of completion in the Bible, and theologians speculate, Bible scholars speculate, that the, the, the idea here is that we're talking about the whole world and all the people groups of the whole world. So it's, it's all in view. But again, the writer is going to move past down through to focus uh, on uh, on Abraham, so he's he's uh, clearing the way for that. Now, uh, also, secondly, here in Genesis 10, uh, Shem is said to be the father of the children of Eber. Well, Eber is where we get the word Hebrew. So this is the beginnings of the Hebrew people. And uh, thirdly, the three oracles. This is interesting too. The three oracles that Noah pronounces on his sons, uh, 
Ham, um, Shem, and, and Japheth, not in that order. Uh, but when he pronounces those oracles, um, or pronouncements, if you will, he uh, uses God's personal name, Yahweh, only when he's talking about Shem. And so that's again, and, and Yahweh is God's covenant name that he uses when he's dealing with Abraham, you'll recall. So, so it's the writer setting us up here for what's going to come after and giving us an explanation as to the uh, plans of God in choosing a, a person and a people group. And, and so, again, to understand the Old Testament and to understand Scripture, these things are helpful. Um, so moving on today, uh, we're going to uh, look at the first nine verses of chapter 11. And in light of what I've just said, it's interesting that this uh, story, if you will, of the Tower of Babel, or Babel, is tucked into all of this geographical, uh, ge genealogical, get it eventually, I'll get it out, genealogical information, so in, in with the Table of Nations, for example. And the interesting thing about that is, is that while the focus is going to be going to Abraham, who God calls out of the world, uh, the world is still in view. And what Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9, and the account or the story of uh, Babel seems to be in Scripture is a theological snapshot of the world. Or, if you, you would, a theological snapshot of the world without God. So let's, uh, let's uh, read uh, those first nine verses of chapter 11. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Uh, then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do uh, will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language so they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, the, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Language is a fascinating thing. According to um, reports from the Linguistic Society of America, there are nearly 7,000 distinct languages spoken in the world. Almost 7,000 different languages. 
So it's, a mo it's both uh, amazingly wonderful and yet at the same time terribly uh, difficult. Um, I read one time about a, a Latino pastor uh, visiting um, the U.S. from South America and uh, he, he could speak English but uh, struggled a little bit with his English and he was speaking one of, uh, at a church and he was talking about his home country and about his family and, and he said regarding his family, he said, I have a charming and understanding wife but alas, no children. And then he paused and said, you see, my wife is impregnable. People chuckled kind of like you just did. And when he realized that he may have said something that was not quite right, he decided he'd better make an attempt to clarify. So he said, what I mean is my wife is inconceivable. <laughs> and then people laughed just like you did. So he said, okay, I'm going to give this one more gallon attempt. So he said, that is to say that my wife, she is absolutely unbearable. Now, that's supposed to be a true story. I'm not sure about this one, but a couple adopted a Chinese baby, and on the way home, they stopped uh, at the local college and, that was offering courses in, in uh, Japanese. And as they were filling out the registration form, the clerk said, whatever uh, possessed you to study Japanese? And so the couple responded proudly, well, we just adopted a Japanese baby, and when he starts to talk, we want to make sure we can understand him. Language is interesting. La language is a very interesting thing. Um, I'm a word nerd, so uh, for, I find language to be very fascinating. To think that I can make a sound with my mouth and you envision things or truths or concepts. I mean, that uh, never ceases to amaze me. Um, but here we have, uh, you know, different languages and the, and the complications that arise from that. Now, I, I know, we're not, I don't think we're completely naive. That We understand that, that mo a lot of people read this and they go, oh, what a quaint little story from some ancient people uh, conceived to explain where the different languages come from, right? Uh, yeah, we, uh, we, we understand that. And a lot of people, they just dismiss uh, this account, same as they dismiss the flood account, and they dismiss Jonah and the great fish account, and they dismiss the parting of the Red Sea, and they dismiss Jesus dying and raising again, and on and on it goes, right? Um, there's, um, there is an element of faith involved in approaching Scripture and taking it for what it, for what it is. And I, I trust we understand that. Um, I believe this happened right the way it says. But I've come to believe that by faith. Um, what I often find inter interesting and somewhat amusing is how people will dismiss the Bible and offer no reasonable explanation for anything um, at the same time. And so I challenge you to consider some of... Uh, uh, of what this is, and people read these these accounts too, and they read, you know, all oh, these people thought they were going to reach, you know, build a tower, and, and they were going to get to heaven by the tower, and they were going to reach heaven, and, and uh, yeah, I, I realize this story has been construed that way at times, but um, these people were, these were real people, 
and, and the, the language of the text doesn't indicate that they were thought they were going to reach heaven by means of building a tower. The language it's talking about is the language of Mesopotamian temples or ziggurats. And the idea was unto the heavens. That, that, that phrase that occurs there was actually a, uh, a somewhat of a technical term, a standard phrase that was used uh, in the construction of temples. And so this was a, a somewhat, a, I guess you could call it somewhat of a religious, a religious act. And, and I know, I know some, some studies I've done in the past uh, talk about the zodiac, and there's different things here that, that possibilities or potentials involved with this, this tower. I don't really focus on that stuff so much this morning as on um, tr to try to understand what was really going on here and what this was really all about. Speaking on this passage, Derek Kidner uh, in his commentary, says that the various aspects of this story are timelessly characteristic of the spirit of the world. The various aspects of this story are timelessly characteristic of the spirit of the world. And as you look at this account, and as you look out at our world today, uh, I think you will agree that those aspects and elements are there, and they're still there. Uh, so what are those aspects? Um, I want to look at some of those. And I think it, we could say it starts with uh, fat heads and big talk. Grandiose plans. We're going to do this thing, and it's going to be so amazing, it's going to revolutionize life as we know it. will never be the same. And uh, it's going to be monumental. It's going to be the greatest thing ever. Have you noticed that we tend to do that? You know, all you got to do is turn on your television and watch a commercial. And it's like, you know, or, you know, or it's the next trip into space or it's always something something is all people are always cooking up something that 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 they're trying to sell as just the the greatest thing ever and maybe not all the time but a lot of the time that speaks to the pride that we have as human beings um, you know if you if you flip back to chapter 10 um, there's an interesting, in the lineage, in the, some of the genealogical information there in uh, uh, the line of Ham. Uh, chapter 10, verse 6 and following. It says, the sons of Ham were Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, so this would be the grandsons of uh, of him, uh, uh, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, uh, Rama, or Rama, and Sebteca, the sons of Rama, Sheba, and Dedan. And then look what it says in verse eight: Cush fathered Nimrod. And then it says he was the first on earth to be a mighty man. I would like to be a mighty man. Not just a man, but a mighty man. Maybe we'll give you a shirt. We'll make you a shirt and we'll put mighty man on. You can wear it around. 
and we'll get you, we'll buy you a truck, not just any truck, but a really, really big truck with really, really big tires with nubbies on them that big. And you have to have a ladder to climb up in. But you can drive that truck around with your mighty man shirt on and you'll be a mighty man. I'm only being partly facetious when I say that. Uh, he was a mighty man. He, he was a mighty hunter. He was the first, the first on earth to be a mighty man. And verse 9 says he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Even the Lord recognized that this Nimrod was, was something else. <laughs> and the reason we're laughing, you're laughing, is because you recognize the word Nimrod as... You might not have even known it was in the Bible, but it is there. So if you're calling people, if you call somebody a Nimrod, um, this is where you're, you need to read, study this first. Like Nimrod, therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. And then look at verse 10. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. See, there's some information that's not in chapter 9, or chapter 11, sorry. It's back in chapter 10, but it is, it is significant, isn't it? And then it goes on in, in uh, verse, uh, uh, verse after that, it says, uh, it mentions he, he also founded other cities, including Nineveh. Nineveh figures very prominently uh, going forward, doesn't it, in, in the biblical story as well. And this is all up the Mesopotamian uh, crescent, uh, the land that would become known as uh, Babylon and Assyria. And this is some of the beginnings of the, of the uh, biblical uh, revelation about uh, Babylon, which comes from Babel, right? Um, so so that's, uh, that's, that's an interesting passage. Um, So there's a there's there's um, and I you know I guess we have to we have to read into it a little bit to maybe come to this conclusion, but if you read around it and you start reading, you know the passage we just read, and then if you go up through Scripture, you find that there's a lot of uh, pride involved in this. You know, it's the beating of the chest kind of stuff shaking of the fists kind of stuff. And, uh, and it's one of the things that characterizes uh, the world that we live in. Um, and yet at the same time, there's, there's insecurity here too. Did you notice that when, in the passage, in the chapter 11 there, the passage it says, uh, you know, let's, let's do this. Um, and part of the rationale was, uh, uh, you know, it says to make a name for ourselves, and it says uh, so the and so that we would not be scattered, dispersed. Uh, that's verse four over the whole earth. Uh, so on the one hand, there's a, a, a kind of a gross overconfidence, but on the other hand, there's this um, bravado to cover this anxiety, and. So, just think about it. Does that describe what we see in the world? And 
I don't know if you see it, but I see it. It seems pretty clear to me that there's a lot of arrogance. And yet at the same time, underneath that arrogance, there's a lot of insecurity. And it kind of describes the world that we, that we live in. And we should expect that because I think that's how it's set out in Scripture here. It's, um, and now when I use the term world, and, that, and this is, I, I wanted to mention this to you as well. When we use the term world, the Bible uses the term world in, in, in different ways, right? Um, it uses it to refer to the, the physical world. Um, it also uses it to refer to the people of the world. But then the Bible also uses the word world to refer to the um, collective mindset of the world. And you, you need to understand that because if you don't, um, you, you'll get confused when the Bible uses the word world. So, for example, when it says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that's talking about the people of the world. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, you know it because of the context, and you know it because of the immediate context. Because what does it say then? It says that whosoever believeth in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He's talking about people. So God loves the world. But then you go to other passages. 1 John 2.15 comes to mind. Do not love the world. Because if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. It seems like a kind of like a contradiction, right? Well, it's actually, there's no, actually no contradiction at all. It's just, and we do the same thing in, in English, in general. Every language, words mean, words have meanings, but the context is critical. And, and when you're interpreting any, anything, certainly when you're interpreting the Bible, context is probably the most important principle there is. You know, sometimes people like to do word studies and we know all the etymology of all these words and where they come from and bring all these nuances of meaning. And, and that's fine and good, but ultimately the meaning of a word is determined by the context in which it's used. And if, and if you're not careful with that, you'll, you'll end up misunderstanding people. You'll under, end up misunderstanding scripture. You'll end up misunderstanding the news <laughs> or, or any other form of, of, of language and communication. So this is important, and the reason I bring it up at this point is because when Scripture uses the word world to refer to the collective mindset of the world, it's not good. That world, that world is not something that we should love, embrace, or be. To use the scriptural word, we should not be of that world. Because the things of the world are in opposition to God or opposition to heaven, if you will. Um, let's see here. Um, so a few things about this passage. Um, hi, sweetie. The first thing I, I want to say at this point is that uh, don't get the idea here that God is against cities or high-rises or towers or what we uh, what we used to call skyscrapers. I don't know if we call them that anymore. Do we call them skyscrapers now? We talk about naive ideas. <laughs> it's not as far away as we think, is it? Skyscrapers, yeah, right. Um, anyways, 
Um, it's the, the idea here is not that God is, is opposed to, to these things. Um, that's tempting for us who love to live in the country. It's tempting for us to take that interpretation from this passage. It's like, yeah, living in the city is a sin. You know? People aren't supposed to live like that. I, I, I can hear the voice of my father-in-law. They're like ants, you know? Who would want to subject themselves to, to that? Um, we, you know, traffic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and and some, some have interpreted this narrative to teach that it was a refusal uh, to obey God's command to spread out and fill the earth. I've got competition here. To spread out and, and I'm going to lose, I know. Spread out and uh, fill the earth. Some people think that that's what this is about here, is that the people were refusing God's command to spread out and fill the earth. Uh, maybe. Um, but you, most people in the earth do live in cities. Did you know that? And they love it. And uh, that's not a bad thing. It's not unbiblical to live in a city. It's not unbiblical to build uh, towers. Uh, CN Tower, you been up CN Tower? I've never been up CN Tower myself, but maybe someday. Um, but anyways, in these cities, you have wonderful amenities. Childcare. Um, <laughs> Um, the arts. If you talk to people that live in cities, <laughs> no way. If you talk to people that live in cities, they'll say, they'll say, uh, I love it because I can just get, walk out my door, walk down the street, and walk into the theater, or I can go to uh, uh, a symphony or the, uh, an art museum or whatever, and it's, it's great. So the amenities are great, and it's really, really, I, yeah, it must be. Sometimes it must be, must be wonderful. Thank you, honey. Thank you. I'm gonna put that in my pocket. Um, I, I, I <laughs> last week I read a quote to you from uh, Mark Buchanan and he, and he said part of the quote was you know something like this we're not only better together we're also worse together so it's not about um, congregating it's more about the inclinations of our hearts and the inclinations of these people's hearts here wasn't good. Um, but God is not dishonored when we choose to live together in community. So we need to get that straight. Um, so there's more going on here than that. That's not, what this, that's not what this is about. And God is not against technology or construction uh, it's significant here that God says in verse 6, he says, the Lord, the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they have one language, and uh, this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. And so we, we would need to understand that statement not as uh, God being concerned about man somehow rivaling him, but as a concerned creator, someone... Uh, worried for our, our welfare. Uh, so it might be a bit of a backhanded uh, compliment, but it's still pretty significant that God would say something like that, that he would re God recognizes in this passage the amazing potential of humanity, uh, what we're capable of doing. And you and I live in a day and an age where we are, are constantly marveling over human invention. Um, you know, uh, this is a marvel. This is an absolute marvel. It, it, it is, right? Um, 
Is it good or bad? Both or neither. It depends on what you do with it. The new, the new Apple, I, I watched a little clip the other day, and they were saying the, the new Apple, the, the, I, I don't ever have a new Apple. Mine's are always three or four years old. It's like my cars. I like them that way. Get all the bugs. Let somebody else get all the bugs out of them. But <clears throat> the new Apple has a fall detection device on it, which is kind of cool. It's like those, you know, they have, they have those fall detecting detection uh, necklaces and stuff you wear and bracelets on that. But the new Apple has that, that. So if you fall down, it says, are you okay? And if you don't respond, it calls 911. Is that, is that good? That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Yeah. So, you know, uh, however, I can also uh, probably within five seconds be looking at images on here that I should never be seeing. Is that good? That's not good. It's not the phone's fault. It's not the technology. Chainsaw cut your neck right off. If you're not careful with it, respect it. But so you and I live in a day and age when uh, technology—it's just absolutely spectacular. Um, computers, space flight, uh, medicine. Thank the good God of heaven for the advancements made in our generations in in medicine. Um, and so God is not anti-technology. He, uh, not only is he not against technology, but I would argue that we need to understand that human technological advancements are part of what it means to be created in the image of God and to rule over creation. That's exactly what technology does. It says that they, they, God put him in the garden to till and to work, to work the earth. You know, you don't do that without technology. You know, and you might look at something like an axe or a knife or a hoe or a hoe and think it's a primitive thing. I think it's a marvelous thing. So is a rototiller. They're both good. Um, yeah. So, so, so um, that's not what's going on here in this passage. Human uh, technology is a marvelous and wonderful thing. It's part of our uh, being created in the image of God and ruling over creation. However, human technology, no matter how great it is or how great it becomes, can never replace God in our lives. It can never be our Savior. Science will never be the Savior of humanity. Some scientists think that it's going to be, which is a way of thinking that they're going to be. We're going to figure this out. We're going to figure this out. Yeah. And then the anxiety comes in this way. We're all going to die. And they can freeze your body or freeze your head and wait 2,000 years. But guess what? It ain't going to change the reality of what Scripture says is appointed unto man wants to die and then the judgment. Technology will not be your savior. And God's certainly not against peace and harmony and unity either because that's sometimes uh, people in this pa read this passage and they think that God's, you know, uh, just is all about dividing up the earth and, and, and uh, doesn't, want, doesn't want, God doesn't want us to communicate well and to corroborate or collaborate, or however you say those, those terms. And that's not what this is 
all about. It's a little bit like the technology thing. Corroboration can be a very good thing or it can be a very bad thing. It depends on what you're corroborating in, right? And it's the same with cities. Cities can be wonderful places or else they can be a concentration of evil. And that's why we have a kind of a love-hate relationship with cities. They're great in some ways, and, but most of us have decided, you know what, I think I'd rather live out in a cabin out in the woods somewhere. Why? You know why, and I know why. So God's not against people dwelling together in harmony and unity either. Um, but peace and unity uh, are, are not ultimate virtues. And by that, I mean that unity can be either a good thing or a bad thing, depending on what it is we're united in. And so God's statement about their potential here in this passage, about their amazing potential, is a remarkable indication of, the human, of human potential in general, even contained in this narrative that is intended to show the utter futility of it. Um, and part of that is the remarkable potential we have for evil when we get together. What happens when we get together and mob mentality sets in? Crucify him. Crucify him. Um, and that, and that's, that's why uh, some of those passages that you, you might maybe find a little bit confusing, like this one here, Luke 12, 51. Jesus said, do you think I have come to give peace on the earth? No, I tell you, rather division. That's what he was talking about. Better, better um, division than unity and evil or heresy. So just to dig a little deeper in the passage this morning, and I know where we are, time is hasting on here, but verse uh, 4 is really telling, isn't it? Let to make a name for ourselves. That's really, that's really indicative there. Let's make a name for ourselves. And it really, I think this is kind of at the heart of the issue here, you know. It's about us making a name for ourselves, putting, putting our mark on it, planting our flag uh, on the moon kind of thing. Um, you know what? Um, the longings we have as human beings to belong and to be significant and even to be great they're not wrong in and of themselves uh, they, but they become wrong when we look in the wrong places and it becomes about us our will our glory our power instead of looking to God to meet our needs the big problem with the, the city of Babylon and the tower of Babel is that it's an attempt to, to uh, shut God out of our lives. It wasn't the act of building the tower. It was the modus and intents of the heart. And that's what make, made it a rebellious act. And it actually became, becomes in Scripture a symbol of rebellion. It becomes a symbol of all that life in this world is without God. It's like the city without God. And if you trace it through, this is theologically very interesting and very significant. If you trace it right through to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 18 is all about the mystery of Babylon, the, the, uh, the great harlot, uh, the, the city of man. Before you get into chapter 
2021-22, where it talks about the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Uh, Coming down out of heaven, the new Jerusalem, the city of God, coming down out of heaven. This is not that. This is the city of man. This is everything that that's not. And there are, there are similarities. Uh, I think of that passage in Revelation where it says, uh, the angel cried and said, Behold, the kingdoms of this earth have become the kingdoms of our God. There's nothing wrong with building a kingdom. There's nothing wrong with building a city. There's nothing wrong with technology and construction and ambition and desire and belonging and significance and all those things are good things. As long as our trust and our faith is in God and not in ourselves and those things. Because when, it's when we shut God out. It's what, you know, what does a world look like without God? Um, I'll uh, just uh, I'll try to, I'll try to uh, just you know, mention a few things to you quick that I, I, I think are kind of interesting as well. Um, because we tend to think of, you know, we talk about the world like, like we're not a part of it. And, and Scripture tells us, that Jesus said, you know, don't be of the world. Don't, don't love the world. Don't be of the world. You need to be of me. Um, but in saying that, we need to recognize, and, and hearing that, we need to recognize that, that that's not automatic either. That's not our default setting. Our default setting, as like we talked about uh, a couple of weeks ago, is sin. And our default setting is not to trust God and to include God and to seek God's glory and, and do God's will and, and uh, build God's kingdom. Our default setting in all of us, not just, not just out there somewhere, it's in us, is to, con- to be concerned about uh, building a na- making a name for ourselves and building our own kingdom and seeking uh, our own glory. And we battle that constantly in our lives, even as, as Christians and as those who would want to, to have a, uh, you know, a, uh, a right, be rightly related to God. It's interesting here in, in the passage where it says, um, it says, let go to, let's do this, or come, let's do this. It mentions it a couple of times, come, let's do this. In the King James, it has go to, go to, let's build, go to, go to. And it, it, it has this sense of uh, like, you know, like those ants, you know, busy, busy, busy. Um, and then I, I uh, it caused, when I, when I, I still think King James, because when I read that, go to, go to, go to, my mind went to James chapter 4, where in the King James it says, go to you who say, tomorrow we're going to go here and do this and going to go over there and make money there and everything. And then it says, what you should be saying, is if God wills, we will do this and this and this and this. And it's the same, uh, it's the same in the King James, it's the same both times. Come, come, come on, let's, let's do this. And there's a whole theme here through this whole, the recognition of God in our lives. And, and, and I'm, I'm talking here today to, to you, those of you who are here that would, um, you know, as, as believers in Christ, you know, these are things we struggle with. Uh, Martha comes to mind, Martha, Martha. When Jesus talks to you and he says your name twice, it usually means that you're in trouble for something, like your parents, right? Martha, Martha. Why, why did he do that anyway? Why didn't he just say Martha? Wouldn't that have gotten it done? But you can see him, you can see him shaking his head. Martha, Martha. Oh, Martha. You know? 
Um, what was what would what you say? You're all concerned about all these things. You're busy, and you're, you know. Mary's chosen the one thing that's needful that will not be taken from her. Um, uh, then and then and then my mind went as well to um, to uh, the whole insecurity thing, and uh, uh, Jesus' words to his disciples in Matthew six. Um, you know, talking with them. You know, don't be concerned about what you're going to wear. Don't be concerned about what you know. All these things, what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, so on. And he says, because the pagans run after all those things. Your Father in heaven knows you need what you need. So if you look beneath the surface here, you see not only pride and rebellion, but you see anxiety and weariness. And that's not something that we can just that just characterizes the world. That characterizes our lives. Anxiety and weariness. Um, or hurry and worry. What's a life without God look like? Well, that's part of what it looks like. Come on, guys, we got to get her done. We got to get this done. Like, it, it all depends on us, right? So we hurry around and we scurry around, and then we worry. And Jesus comes along and he says, don't do that. That's not how you live. If you have the relationship with the Father, you don't need to live that way. Don't do that. That's how, the, how unbelievers live their lives. That's how you live your life without God. Um, John Ullman named the twin perils of ministry flurry and worry. Or we could, we could call them uh, fuss and fret. Uh, just a couple more scriptures really quick. Isaiah 30, verse 15. Thus saith the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning in rest you shall be saved, in quietness and trust shall be your strength. And if you read those passages in the context, you will know, because this is a refrain of the prophets, all through the Old, Old Testament, the, the, the context was that Israel was running around thinking, oh, this isn't good, you know, we need, we need to go get some help here. We better go down to Egypt and see if we can round up some men and bring them back and get them to help us because we're in big trouble here if we don't, if we don't take care of this situation. And they were, and God's saying, don't do that. Don't do that. You need to stop. It's so an attitude of the heart, right? Hurry is a state of mind and heart. Scripture speaks about being still. It, it talks about walking and running too, but, but it's, it's an attitude of the heart. And again, it's not that there's anything wrong with building. It's not that there's anything wrong with planning. It's not that there's anything wrong with inventing. It's not that there's anything wrong with being prepared. Those things are all good, but what is the attitude and the thoughts of our heart? Where are our hearts at? What are we trusting in? Are we trusting in ourselves or are we trusting in God? That's the main point here, and that's the main point throughout the remainder of Scripture when the city of Babel is compared with the city of God and the one who is of God is compared to the one who is of the world. That's the main point. It's about a relationship uh, with, with God. Um, and the curriculum um, states, just to finish up here, the curriculum states that God left the Tower of Babel unfinished, left it to decay as a monument to the fallout of human rebellion, a warning about the final destruction of sin. A half-built city 
is a fitting monument to the futility of man's ambitious, half-baked plans to uh, live without God in our lives. What uh, Pastor Matt Carter called towers of disappointment. Do you have any of those in your life? Two scriptures, I just throw them up on, I'll get uh, Mitchell throw them up on the screen real quick. Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and is safe. God's not against towers, but he wants to be our security. He is our security. Science will never save you. It's a good thing but it'll never save you. It'll never replace God. And Zephaniah 3.9, I thought this was interesting. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. God didn't uh, uh, confound the languages because he's against unity and harmony and oneness confounded the languages because so often we're worse together than, the, than we are better together. But when we are better together, it's when we are united in our recognition and praise of God, our Savior. I'm going to stop there. It's 10 after 12, but I do want you to, um, to think a little bit uh, as we you know, as we maybe perhaps go through your day today about um, the, the, the pride that's so common in the world and shows up so often in our own hearts and our own attitudes and how preventative it is, preventing us from really having the kind of relationship with God that he wants us to have. Um, I've been thinking about this so much uh, coming out of Genesis chapter 3. Um, you know, and, and later, um, we don't see it until we get into uh, Isaiah and Ezekiel where, we, where the prophets talk about uh, Lucifer and his fall and what precipitated the fall of the uh, archangel Lucifer. And it was pride, right? and the connection between pride and, and sin, and the, and the connection between being proud and shutting God out of our lives. Um, it's been on my heart a lot because I recognize in my own life when I fail to make the kind of progress in my life that God wants me to make, it used, there's always pride in there somewhere preventing me from humbling myself before him and experiencing the kind of relationship with him that, that he wants us to have. I'm going to ask you to stand. and So do you have a takeaway? Oh, it's just a quaint story, you know, that somebody made up to explain, you know, what ancient tribes made up to explain where the languages come from. No, it's not. It's a theological snapshot of what the world is without God. And it's not pretty. Um, and it sets, really sets the stage for those themes 
right through the rest of Scripture. They're important. They're personal. When we talk about pride or when we talk about uh, our insecurities, these are very, these, this, it's not just the world out there. It's also the world in here. And uh, God help us to deal with those things according to his grace. Um, I just want to pray with you. Father, thank you for this time, for these folks, and for your word. Lord, we ask, uh, you, you call us to faith, and you call us to have faith in your word, Lord. I just ask, Lord, that you would create that faith in us, that you would give us, uh, show, show yourself to us, Lord. Show yourself in your truth. Um, precious Holy Spirit, may you, may you show us not only our, our sin and our need for you, but Lord, that you might show us how, um, how much we need you and how incredibly ready you are to be uh, that strong tower that we can run into, that we can trust in you, and that we don't need to live uh, hurt lives of hurry and worry. We don't need to succumb to the arrogance uh, of, of our sinful natures, but that we can look to you and receive your blessing in our lives and walk humbly before you and have uh, your peace and the unity of your spirit, and that we would live uh, for your glory and for your name and build your kingdom, and that you would do these things um, for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.